What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of From A to B, where Tracy and I have no bullshit conversations about topics and experimentation in digital marketing. In today's episode, we discuss snakes. Yes, they are related to perverse incentives and experimentation. I promise you, you're intrigued, aren't you? I know you are. We also discussed that while good in theory, there are a few things such as velocity or testing to win, which can be perversely incentivized. Tracy and I are seasoned digital marketing experts, having done experimentation for a combined 16 years worth of experience. If you liked the episode, or shit, even if you hated the episode, please subscribe and follow our LinkedIn page for more updates. As always, sit back, tune in, and enjoy the conversation. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of From A to B. You have Shiva here, and I'm joined by my, as always, lovely co-host, Tracy. Tracy, say hello. Hello. So, what's on my mind is, I was rizzing you about favor versus favor. Like with the U. With the O-U-R. Yeah. Versus just the O-R. Here's the thing. Let me give this to the non-US folks. The metric system is by far and away the better system for measuring everything. Damn right. I, I don't know why we use this inches stuff. Like it makes no sense. Like 12 is just so random. I just It makes no sense. It's really stupid. So much easier is easier to use centimeters, meters, decameters, millimeter, whatever. I don't know. But we nailed it when we said favor. First of all, one less word. So it's cheaper and better for the economy. I'm sorry. One less letter, not word. But it just looks better. Why are you adding U's everywhere? Okay, I'm sure that there's actually a reason for this, but because the U.S. is doing something, it's probably the wrong approach. Look at it this way. Europe has been around for centuries longer than the U.S., and obviously they decided to drop the U into the word for a reason. Let the record state that Tracy is a hippo. I am definitely a hippo. I complain about hippos all the time, but I am definitely a hippo myself. (laughs) Let the record state that Tracy is, she prefers the old way of doing things and does not like changing anything or investing in more efficient ways of doing things. That's not true. I technically should be writing cursive, but I don't. Were you taught cursive in school? I was. And my signature looks so terrible whenever I have to sign things. So bad. I have like a customer service, whatever signature that I would use to just put items on hold. And that's just my go to now. I just don't. I don't give a shit about my signature. Whenever you're tasked with like signing something on an iPad when you go to a food truck or something, I just do a straight line. Like what's the straightest line I could do? That's my signature. They never look true to the written form ever. So why bother? (laughs) Anyway, in a perfect pristine segue going from discussing swiping on an iPad to perverse incentives. This is something that I've seen a lot of discussion on with LinkedIn, and I wanted to explore this a little bit more as to, first of all, what are they? Because I think people view them slightly differently. So what are they? Where do they manifest in terms of experimentation? And how does it affect experimentation? And what can we do about perverse incentives? What can we do to reduce the perversiveness of incentivization, as Shiva sounds super smart using conjugations of words <laughs> towards these things. Never try to learn French then. You'd, you would hate it. I barely know English. Don't, don't make me add <laughs> to that repertoire. Okay, so I think we should probably define a perverse incentive first before we get into what they are beyond that. 
Sure. Ultimately, and I'm just kind of going off of what Wikipedia says as a perverse incentive because still totally a legit tool. I'm going to fight anyone on that. A perverse incentive is ultimately an incentive that has an unintended and undesirable result that kind of goes against the intentions of the designers. So you set up an incentive and what ends up happening is contrary to what you were trying to achieve in the first place. And it's not a good result. Unintended is probably a focal point of that definition, right? Yes, absolutely. What would be an example of a non-CRO related perverse incentive that I think we could all relate to? I don't know if we can all relate to this, but it's happened a lot throughout history where there would be pest problems or countries overrun with snakes, rats, and the kind of perverse incentive that was given to its population was, we've got a bounty for collecting rats, collecting snakes, kill them, show proof that you killed them, and we're going to give you some money. What people would end up doing is say, hey, why don't I just breed these pests and then turn them in for some money? And what ends up happening there is you actually have even worse of a population issue with those particular pests that you're trying to get rid of. The incentive is good. Incentive is let's reduce the pest population where it perversizes. It perverts (laughs) it. Yeah. Where it, no, perversizes. That's, I know words. Where it perversizes itself is we are creating a bigger problem to ultimately solve for the problem. Yep. And you're not actually solving the problem. You're creating a worse problem. You're enabling people to breed more, which causes a bigger problem, rather than actually saying, hey, here's the net reduction. To make that a non-perverse incentive or to actually make this a good thing, they would have just looked at the total population of rats and said, if this population goes down, then we are hitting our goals. I think one good thing to call out here before we get too into the experimentation use cases is that this could be either making the original problem worse or creating an entirely new problem. That's a good framework for us to understand where do perverse incentives exist in experimentation. The first thing that stands out to me for perverse incentivization and experimentation is CROs or agencies. I think this happens a lot more with agencies and individual CROs, but I have seen this all across the board, which is optimizing for wins. Yes. Literally focusing on win, 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 never generating a learning along the way. Their KPIs win. How much money did we make? I think that's actually a pretty noble goal to optimize towards in general, right? Like you're not trying to run an optimization program to learn and then that's it, right? Like it doesn't matter how much money we make. Ultimately, you do want to make more money. In the same way with our previous example, ultimately you want to not have there be a pest problem. The intentions were not necessarily perverse from the start, but where does that example get perverted? I think the thing that jumps out the most to me is When you get your results and you don't like what you're seeing, you are going to naturally feel inclined to point out the good or the positives in what you see and kind of ignore the bad. Like, oh, yeah, don't look right here. That that, that doesn't exist. Oh, our success KPI is doing horribly. Oh, yeah, don't look at that. Look at this other KPI. That means absolutely nothing. And then, you know, you're so desperate to have a win that you end up making decisions that actually might hurt your bottom line. A tactical example of that would be, I run a test that I need to improve conversion rate. The KPI success KPI's conversion rate, I'm determining that before the test runs. And then I run the test and I see a statistically significant drop in conversion rate. 
and all the major metrics for success look terrible. Then I take three steps back and I'm like, well, time on site increased by three seconds. So let's call that a win because we improved a, a good metric. That's where you could have a perverse incentive where if you're trying to find a win, if you don't have a win, you you twist it around to make it a win, even if it's not actually a win. And also, like, who's to say that time on site is a positive thing? Did your time on site increase because people are having a harder time finding what they're looking for? So just those little things that you you have to consider, I think. I think you could also even reasonably say, like, that's a, an extreme example. Some that maybe have has a little bit less, maybe something that you might think is good, which might not be good, is that same test. And you're like, all right, raw conversion rate was statistically significant down. However, we increased add to cart rates. Therefore, it's a win. That's what I was just thinking about. <laughs> that one to me is a little bit of a gray area. This is why pre-test KPI setting is important. If that was an example where you're like, well, add to cart did increase, conversion rate did decrease, but there's a learning that we gained along the way, I still wouldn't call it a win by the traditional definition of generated money or anything like that. Mm -hmm. If you want to call it a win because you've learned something interesting that like, yep, it's closer to the change and we increase add to cart rates, there's something here, but we need to iterate for it to be a true win. I love that logic. And I think that's beyond the scope of a perverse incentive. Mm -hmm taking a step back, the perverse incentive is you're running a test, it loses by all metrics. So you find a metric that you're able to say, okay, it won. Whether that's bounce rate, time on site, find a segment that just narrowly won. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, well, this segment went from like three conversions to six conversions. Yep. So that's a win. No, it's not, right? Like, no, it's not. No. So you're looking for these wins. Totally. What about when you see kind of programs that are optimizing for velocity? Do you kind of see that that creates a perverse incentive as well? I do, because I think it's a singular metric that same thing we talked about, like time on site can mean good or bad. I could run 50 button color tests and my velocity checkbox. Yeah, actually way beyond checkbox. I could run 50 button color tests a week. Am I actually making a tangible change to the program? Maybe. Probably not. Probably not. What do you think? Do you think that's a problem of, you know, using velocity metrics and velocity metrics only as a way to say our program is healthy? Yeah, no, I do not like optimizing for velocity. I really do not. There are situations in which I unfortunately have. Usually in that situation, it's because the client is not happy with the pace of the program. They're less interested in the learnings. They're less interested in running a small handful of tests that may produce results, they want to see more. They want more, 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 more. So yeah, I'll tack on a velocity goal for their program, but I do not want to see that in just its own silo. It means nothing. Like you can be running shit tests every day. That doesn't mean anything. I'll say it means something. It just means that you're running a lot of tests, but it's devoid of any context. It's very fun to say publicly like, I've run so many hundreds or so many thousands of tests. And it's like, wow, great, dude. But like, what does that actually mean at the end of the day? Did you learn something? Did you actually make a change? I don't see the number of tests that I've run personally as a badge of honor. I don't even know how many tests I've run, to be honest with you, because I don't think it matters. I think that's an example of if you need to brag about your velocity, you don't have anything else to brag about. Mm. That's a spicy take. I'm going to get some hate for that. But 
I think if you're bragging about velocity and you're talking about nothing else, if you're saying we ran 100 tests and revenue and learning and this and that, and that's one of like seven metrics, uh -huh. love it. And I think that's fantastic. But if your claim to fame is like I ran 100 tests and that's the only thing you could brag about, are you actually making an impact in the same way that like if you run seven tests and you're like, well, we ran seven tests and we increased add to cart rate by 3%. If that's the only thing that you tell me and you tell me nothing else, I'd be like, huh, that's us. I would probably give an agency a pass because it may speak to how many clients you've had or how many years you've been in business. But if it's maybe just one individual with a limited set of experience, I'd rather focus on this individual's results and what they bring to the table in terms of learnings and knowledge and just, yeah, the impact that they've made overall. I'd even argue it's still a problem if an agency's only metric that they brag about is test velocity in a vacuum. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that that alone should not be an indicator of your success because that's a perverse incentive. It doesn't promote the right behaviors and results. I think it can. I think it can. The problem is in the same way that the snake example, it had a good initiative uh -huh. and it's saying, let's eliminate this problem. In the same way, test velocity can say, we want to accelerate our learnings by running a lot of tests. <laughs> it is a fantastic framework, but it enables bad faith actors to jump in and run a bunch of low quality to check it. Or low effort tests. Or low effort, 100%, yes. So both of those things can still, it can be perversely incentivized. It doesn't mean it always will be. Would you agree that maybe the antidote to that would be focusing less on velocity and more on your test mix, like making sure you have a certain number of low effort tests mixed in with high effort, but maybe high reward backed by research to the extreme. So I think that's a great call out and we should definitely dissect that. It's a topic around overall evaluation criteria, basically meaning like you don't run a singular metric in isolation as a program success. You can have a metric that intelligently groups like quality, quantity, insights generated, speed, et cetera. I think that's a great topic we should dissect in a future episode. But pulling it back to perverse incentives here. So one of the last things I wanted to bring up here was around ending a test early. There are very much scenarios that ending a test early is a good thing. Contrary to popular belief, if a test is doing so poorly after three days, the odds that it will ultimately normalize down are very low, that you're playing a risk-reward scenario of stop-lossing, i.e. preventing the wound from continuing to bleed. There's, there's an analogy here that I'm totally spacing out on, but you're stopping the bleeding from the wound, yeah. right? You don't want it to continue to bleed for two weeks to say, yep, it definitely is bleeding. We know it's not going to do something great. And instead, there is benefit in shifting to the next test if it's already built out rather than letting this continue to go. I think that's a very reasonable take for ending a test early. But do you see an opportunity for perverse incentives to actually be a big negative within ending a test early? Yeah, I've seen it before where... A whole program is seen as this huge moneymaker, this huge success story. And then you look inside under the hood and you see what happens when they find out none of that actually materialized or very little of that actually materialized. What have you done? You've broken trust. 
you've hurt your reputation, and you've forced the client to make what could potentially be really bad decisions that are actually hurting them in the long run. Do they bank on the fact that the client will never figure it out? Probably. <laughs> right? Like, so in the same way, like the bounty hunter for the snakes doesn't plan on anyone finding out they have a snake farm. Yeah, at best, it's ignorance or just not knowing any better. I think it's malice. You're being very generous. I'm going to take a hard stance here and say there are some people who are ignorant and there are some people who are malicious and will prey on people who don't know any better to make these call outs. Yeah. That's where the perverse incentive is pretty closely tied to bad fake actors. It could be ignorance. You're being very generous. I think there's a lot of people who will utilize perverse incentives to make themselves look better and make themselves money. Agreed. It's an interesting call out about thinking about ending tests early because that's actually pretty closely related to winning, right? Why are they ending a test early? They want to call it a win. They like what they see. They're like, yeah, stop it right now before it... Stop it right now because it might not win in yes. two weeks when it actually reaches its appropriate power, but it's winning now. So let's quickly call it. Also, optimize is green. So let's go, go quickly, go do it now before they figure it out. And that's where I think there's more malice than ignorance. But it does seem like there's a pretty common theme around singular metrics and winning. Uh -huh. And maybe let's pull it all together and figure out why does this even matter? Why are we talking about perverse incentives here? I think there are a few reasons why. One being it kind of ruins it for the rest of us because you have a bad experience where you say you work with a CRO agency or you work with a CRO consultant who breaks your trust. You're just not going to trust other CRO agencies where it's going to take a long time to rebuild that trust. You might not even trust the CRO process anymore. Then you're going to start looking to like cheap lists that just tell you like, this is going to win. This is this is what worked for me. And then you might end up making mistakes that hurt you in the long run. Totally agreed on that. And to add to that, it creates a bad CRO program. Yeah. Ultimately, what your CRO program is trying to do is generate insights, mitigate loss, and help you win and help you make help you make better decisions to ultimately help you win, right? Yeah. But it's a process in all of these things. If you are incentivizing bad behavior, ending tests early, focusing on wins that maybe don't exist or looking for wins where they don't exist. For sure. And then calling it a win and then rolling out at 100%. Yeah. You're rolling out something that you're saying is a net benefit that might cost you a decent amount of effort to actually roll it out. It might actually be a loss. So it's a double whammy. I would much rather in my heart of hearts know that okay i have some lukewarm results on some programs but at least i was damn honest and i checked myself before i wrecked myself ultimately what we're trying to do is help you make better decisions and give you the data to know to make these better decisions not every test is going to give you the highest confidence but as long as you're being honest and saying here's the risk here's the reward you have all of the data to make the best possible decision Fantastic. And if you're being perversely incentivized to lower that bar while selling it as a much higher bar. Bad. You're fucking everyone else, including us. Absolutely. And I don't like you and I hope you stub your toe. Ooh, that's rough. <laughs> that's real rough, ain't it? <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, I think there's a very interesting LinkedIn post of the week that mimics a little bit about this conversation. So let's go ahead and jump into the LinkedIn post of the week. All right, so this LinkedIn post of the week is brought to us by Simone Girardin. Girardin. 
Oh, that was yeah, pretty close. It. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Simon, I was just going to go Simon Garden and like <laughs> say, Simon, I love you. D- please just <sighs> like don't hate me. But I was pretty close. Yeah. For a Texan, yes. <laughs> For a t- I'm not a Texan. I'm a Connecticut. Okay, fine, fine. Anyway, I do say y'all a lot. Oh, that's totally unrelated. <laughs> so Simon Giardet. Yes, beautiful. Nice. Mm. Brings us a post, and I'll, I'll read a couple quotes here. It's a pretty short post, but it's a pretty powerful post, in my opinion. So, CRO is defined or performed differently by multiple actors in the industry. It is misused and misrepresented by many service providers. Agencies and consultants label multiple services as CRO when they should not. <laughs> so I think that's pretty closely tied to what we just discussed of perverse incentives in finding wins when wins don't exist. But even taking a step back, calling something CRO that isn't CRO or agencies that say they do CRO, but it's like, oh, here's just our best practice list. Mm -hmm. It's not actually testing. There's no methodology behind it. I actually was going to ask you, like, because I come up blank. I know CRO in its pure form. I've never really engaged with an agency that says, oh, this is our CRO team, practice, whatever, and it's not actually process-based. Is there anything that you would add to that as CRO that's not actually CRO? The CRO that's not CRO that I've seen from these agencies are things like, we have our best practices or we'll test the button colors. I'm not saying that's not CRO. It technically fits under the umbrella. But if you're an agency that says you do CRO and you give me a prioritized list of test ideas and seven of the 10 are related in some way to button shape, color, or very minor copy edits back to no research, then don't say you do CRO. I'm just going to be blunt. Don't say you do it because that to me, you're not like, what's the research behind that? I've talked to agencies who have said that and they're like, we do CRO. Okay, cool. Where's the research? Uh, heuristic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like, what's your process? And they're like, I think it would be better because I'm an expert. Yeah. That's not an answer. There are some, I'm not saying that as a broad scale. It's more just like if an agency says they do CRO, I would never take it on its face value. I would probe a little bit deeper in the same way that if you're hiring a person who says they like your product manager, who's like, I know CRO. And if that's like one of the skills that they're promoting is I'm very good at it, why not probe a little bit deeper and say like, all right, let's geek out on process. Totally. Or when you see agencies that say they do all digital marketing, they do ads, SEO, CRO. They just throw all the acronyms together, right? Yeah. We'll do what you want us to do, I guess. I mean, you know, that's a good segue into the next part of this quote or next part of this post, which is if you're sold real CRO, you should know all about the process. Yes. Right? 100%. Agency side, client side, hiring side, everything. You can geek out on process just like you can geek out about results. Mm -hmm. Simon is definitely also the person who knows what they're talking about here because he totally booted up and led a CRO unit in an agency that does not specialize in CRO. And he talks about how it falls apart when you only have like one team in this massive agency that's pushing for CRO. It never gets the love that, for example, advertising gets. It just doesn't. It never does. 100%. Yeah. So continuing along in the quote here, it results in businesses leaving their partner with a sour taste in their mouth and an inversion for the term CRO. Can't blame them. You rightfully called this out earlier in the episode, right? What does this mean? for perverse incentives. People are just like, dude, fuck CRO. This is stupid. I saw it, even though you didn't actually see it, but I saw a version of it. It didn't work for them. And that is absolutely right. It didn't work for them. 
But you're giving CRO a bad name. Yeah, it's like this just immediately made me think of like going to the mechanic. And if you have one mechanic who tells you, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, all of this and marks you up just because, you know, you don't know any better. You're going to look at all mechanics that way in future. You're going to think that they're out to get you and rip you off. It's the same thing here. What do you know about mechanics? You don't have a car. God, nothing. Absolutely nothing. No, my dad, my dad's like kind of a mechanic. Oh, yeah, right. like that's right. Right. <laughs> but I do not. I do not have a vehicle. I, I have a horrible driver. Do not get into a vehicle with me. If Good I'm to driving. know. Good to know. <laughs> so Simon wraps with this. The least sexy parts are components of the process and the research. The least sexy parts are what create sexy results in case studies. Yeah. And I think that's just a fantastic way to end this, right? Process is not sexy. To us, it's beautiful. Yeah. But it's not sexy. No one wants to learn about a prioritization framework. They want to buy wins. Yeah. And there will be agencies perversely incentivized to sell that. They might sell guarantees. They might sell guaranteed lifts to conversion rate, guaranteed wins, whatever. While an agency might do that, to me, what's more important is a valid process along the way and Simon agrees with that. Simon's saying that. Simon says. Simon says. I love that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Would you add anything to that? No. Good. We did it. <laughs> well, that wraps up another episode of From A to B. Thank you all so much for tuning in, taking a listen. If you guys aren't subscribed and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. If you hated this episode and you subscribed, I would appreciate that too. I'm cool with that. That's fine with me. So... Feel free to just subscribe in any capacity, even if you love us or hate us. Yeah, hate, subscribe. That's totally, yeah. I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> Take care, y'all. <laughs>